Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And welcome to Antiques Freaks. Your podcast has arrived. For you and only you. Get in, get in. Don't tell anyone where you're going. Get in. (laughs) (laughs) What antiques are we talking about this week? Well, Ken, I'm going to tell you about a load of crock. I'm listening. (laughs) I want to talk about stoneware crocs. Ah, hell yeah, stoneware. Specifically the crocs. Now, won't those be very heavy on your feet, Dee? These stoneware crocs. (laughs) Slaps my knee. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we do have fun here on the Antiques Rigs podcast. Oh my god, what a a fucking jape, though. What a jonker trick I've played on you this day. (laughs) It's a joker joke. So a croc, as you might have thought, is also called a preserving croc. These are anywhere from small to large stoneware vessels, generally very simple in design, used to hold and preserve foods. Most of the crocs we're going to be talking about are made from stoneware, although you get some made out of redware and white stone clay. For a very quick and comprehensive understanding of what stoneware really means, it is a non-porous ceramic that is watertight, even without glaze. It's dope as hell is what it is. Yeah, and the fact that it's watertight is extremely important to how it is used to keep foods. Now, the concept of a crock probably goes back to about as long as human beings figured out to store food. But the specific style that you're probably thinking of and that was popular in Europe and the USA supposedly originated from France in the 1700s. A large, thick stoneware crock that was either cylindrical or had a gentle taper not dissimilar to a rum jug, depending on what it was used for. These crocks are generally simple, handmade, and have very simple or rustic designs, perhaps painted under the glaze, perhaps inscribed. Now, after the late 1700s, a lot of English potters moved to America, and this enabled American potteries to start making stoneware crocks because up until then, all crocs in the U.S. were being exported. Imported. They were being imported. That's the word. The crocs come in, but they don't go out. Nobody ever sees them go in. Nobody ever sees them go out. (laughs) Which incidentally becomes a sort of cheat code to dating these specific ones, because all you have to look for is a non-English language. These crocs also frequently feature divots on the side, which are referred to as ears, which I think is very cute. That's what they look like, though. They're little ears on either side. And these are used to lift and or shift the crocs. At certain sizes, lifting becomes an impossibility, but you could use them to sort of, uh, you know that thing where you walk a large piece? Absolutely. Easter Island head style. Yeah. Just kind of womp, womp, womp. That's a very scientific explanation of how they did it. It is. Although it was very common as handmade goods, uh, actually one example that comes to mind is specifically to you, Ken, if you remember that talk we went to about cemeteries and headstones and how most headstones were just made by some guy who had the tools. Yes. Crocs were very much in that class. They were something everyone needed all of the goddamn time. So people were just making them whenever they had spare time and the supplies to be making them. Everybody make Crocs. Although some studios ended up specializing in crockery. Ha, I bet they did. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Some famous makers include Monmouth Pottery, Robinson Ransbottom Pottery, and perhaps most famously Red Wing Pottery, a pottery that became synonymous with American crock. American crock? American crock. American crock. Some of the kinds of crocks you run into are butter crocks, cake crocks, salt, sugar, and dry good crocks, wine, booze, liquor crocks, water glassed eggs crocks, Meat curing cocks. Cro- <laughs> one of those where you gotta be really careful about not stumbling over a word so I don't say meat curing cocks. Well, now you have, so we have that on record. Aw, oh, man. Aw, oh, ding dang it. And it is the clip we will be using to advertise our podcast from now on. Hooray, meat curing cocks. <laughs> the cocks. <laughs> the there you go. You've done it again, you have. The crocs. 
Because now I've been primed. My plan comes together, it does. <laughs> I've waited for this day for years. God damn it. God damn you. We made it through clocks and couldn't get through Crocs. <laughs> In real talk, a Croc could be literally any size, ranging from half gallon to every now and again, people will find basements that have 100 or 200 gallon Crocs in them. Damn, good luck getting it the fuck out. That's the thing is most of those were made to sit in a place forever. Think like a winery that might have one with a spigot on the bottom. Oh. Just like meat curing crocs tend to start at about 20 gallons in range, up to 60 gallons or so. Again, those weren't necessarily going anywhere, although they did tend to be low enough that you could get stuff out of them. One of the omnipresent features of the croc is the number on it, which I have heard more times than once that people don't know what the hell it means. The number was just a way to identify the size or volume of the croc. Oh, this croc holds 10 gallons, that kind of thing? Yes, it can be a little iffy because it could be gallons or quarts. Generally speaking, I have never, and most of the research that I dipped into, have never seen anything outside of those two units of measurement, but it could be either or. It could be a kilderkin. We just don't know. I don't know what that means, Ken. <laughs> For more on Kilderkins, please review our Karnaki the Ghostfinder episode with Terrible Book Club. Oh god, is it from that? Oh my god. It is. Which one? Keep digging. <laughs> just find it. Go listen. Oh no, you're gonna have to listen to all of our Karnaki episodes. Oh no. One fun thing about the number on the Crocs is that it can become another one of the many trickling identification markers that you can find on Crocs. Mostly because every individual or company had their own way of marking the number. And over time, when you can establish patterns, you can learn to associate it with either that studio, company, or individual. For example, some would stamp it on, some would paint it on, some would incise the number in, some would incise the number in and then paint into the incision. Okay, one of the things I ran into a lot, and I'm hoping maybe you can help me with this one, Ken. I'll do my best. People kept talking about Crocs, right? And they constantly talk about finding them at thrift stores and Goodwills and doing things to them, such as putting plants in them or turning them into little water features. And I would like to know, from where you're from, did you find these cheap and frequently? Because where I'm from, these have always been a high-ticket item, and that seems to be in the minority of experiences. I don't know that I see a whole lot of crocs in the wild where I'm from, but I wouldn't say I ever thought of them as expensive. Okay, so yeah, that is kind of what I'm getting at, is I have always thought of them as expensive. So imagine my surprise when I logged on to www.internet.com and found out that people were just kind of shoving dirt into the damn things. I mean, it's not the stupidest thing people have done with antiques. I'm passing a lot of judgment for someone who doesn't have all of the answers. It's just that as an immediate shock to the system, it is a lot like someone taking Limoges and putting a plant in it, you know? What's a Limoges? Limoges is a, well, technically it refers to a variety of vitreous porcelain from France. Oh, I would also put a plant in that, not gonna lie. Please don't. <laughs> Too late. Already doing it as we speak. Do we have an episode on Limoges? I don't believe so. We probably don't or you would have remembered it. Have you heard us do an episode on Limoges already? Write in antiquesfreakspodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. We have several hundred episodes and it gets pretty hard to manage what we have and haven't done sometimes. Ask us how many times we've recorded a Milk Bottles episode before realizing we've already done that one. Twice and shut up. You know, I try to search for her own podcast to make sure if I get a wild hair about something, it doesn't work every time. So yeah, please let me know. <laughs> or if you want me to do it again, like whatever. I'm at your whim. 
Yeah, so Crocs tend to be uh, on the market just like an interior design thing, which fucking wilds me out, bro. Well, they're very simplistic in their design, so they go with a lot of stuff, which makes them ideal for interior designers. Yep, they are. They do. And all of that. You doing farmhouse chic? You doing cottagecore? Whatever you're fucking doing to this place. You doing mid-century modern, sleek, simple design lines? You got it. Fucking throw a Croc in there. See what happens. In fact, I think I saw more articles on how to decorate with Crocs than how to find and identify them. The assumption being that you're already lousy with the damn things. Yeah, it's like, I guess this is sort of a call to action. I want you to tell me if where you're from and where you thrift and antique, are you lousy with the goddamn things? Because I've never been. (laughs) Someone asked me for $50 for a broken one at a yard sale around here and I didn't blink because I was like, yeah, that's about what people do. I think you might just need to get out of the city more. But I mean, I've also gone out west and just sort of not seen Crocs out there. So like, I don't know. Western Mass, not the country. I mean, you've also been to Ohio and Pennsylvania and what have you. Yeah, I didn't see any fucking Crocs there either. And you best believe we stopped and shopped. Just like the grocery store demanded. I mean, you stopped in Centralia, so... Well, they weren't selling anything there except for a lot of broken dreams. Welcome to Silent Hill. Anyway, so Crocs are cool. And I guess it seems pretty unpopular to want to know anything about them, but in case you are... I don't know. People just don't seem. People don't seem to give a shit. I don't know what to tell you. Nobody wants to learn a goddamn thing about these crocs. <laughs> Nobody wants. They don't care. I literally read an article that was talking about how cool it would be to fill one with pine cones. It would though. Think about it, won't you? No, it wouldn't. Fuck you. <laughs> What did pine cones ever do to you? Oh, because I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking about how irritated I would be to have a 10 gallon jug of pine cones in my home. If you ever need a pine cone, there it is. I don't need them for anything. It's practical, D. I'm going to kill you. (laughs) And I'm going to store your body in a meat cure. And you'll do it too. You know where I live. I'm going to store your body in a meat curing crop. Ooh, how very Hannibal. One really thing cool, one really thing I found... (laughs) One really thing. One more really thing. (laughs) One interesting thing I found is that there actually is a turn for people who are into food preservation to use these for pickling, generally. I did read about a couple of uh, farmhouse people who were using it for glassing eggs, which, you know, mandatory. No, do not try that with eggs that have had the bloom removed, which is any processed egg. This is strictly for storing eggs that came out of your own chickens. Correct. For the most part, these are insanely cleanable, sterilizable, yada yada. Even if they have like dings and scratches on the inside, you can actually just rub in beeswax multiple times to reseal them. Cool. Yeah, there's uh not too many, but a couple of videos on YouTube where they share their process of how they drip the wax in to fill rough dings in the inside so they can use it for pickling again. Neat. Extremely neat. I love a useful antique. However, if you're one of the cool people who have the interest in identifying these crocs, this vacillates wildly between two extremes of very easy and extremely difficult. It might be very easy because the maker's mark is generally on the bottom of the croc. This is almost universal. It might be difficult because that maker's mark might mean nothing to anyone anymore. We have the hieroglyphs, but not the Rosetta Stone. Exactly. Again, very similar to headstones, which are frequently signed. It's just that that name might not connect to literally anything unless you are deep into local history. And let's be honest, you should be. You should be. And one of the really cool things about crocs is how instrumental that they become to local history. Because everyone's making them them all of the time whenever they have a spare minute locally. Exactly. 
one of the really cool things about the, the values of Crocs is that they tend to be more valuable in the area they came from. Much like milk bottles. Just like milk bottles, yeah. Which, you know, actually puts a price tag onto learning your local history. And that price? Four dollars. Which actually sounds really, really mercenary now that I've said it out loud like that. A little bit, yeah. There's a lot of reason to learn your local history. But really... Really, it's about the big fat stacks of fucking cash. But really, you should be doing it for the cold hard coin. Yes, the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Finally revealed. These baker's marks can be logos, letters, or symbols, which is more common for studios and companies, or just a name, which is common for single craftsmen. Other things like the placement of the signature or marking can say something about who did it. There are some people who specifically used sidewall stamps after a certain point in history to impress their name on the side of the croc instead of signing them individually. This becomes particularly important if you want to specialize into red wing pottery as they have a whole chunk of their history where they used sidewall stamping. And if you can't read the mark, which if you've ever seen one of these things in person, that's a good 8 out of 10 chance that you're not going to be able to see it clearly. Again, used commonly every day for a very, very long time until refrigerators get invented. You can pretty much do a grave rubbing on the damn thing. Uh, Their similarity to headstones continues to amaze me. Grave rubbing. Rubbing. Not grave robbing. Do not do a grave robbing. I cannot condone that. It is particularly important for us to enunciate this point on an audio format. This is a really enunciation heavy episode. Uh Uh-huh. Don't grave rob, but do grave rub your cocks. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Well done. Well played. This whole podcast was worth it. It's really worth it. And actually, to that point, also do not do any grave rubbings without contacting your local historical society first. True. They're actually very detrimental to the health of the gravestone itself. Yep. Not quite as bad as lichen, but not great. Not awesome. And your local historical society or grave appreciation society in some uh, larger cities can point out the ones that are safe to be rubbed, uh, so on and so forth. Another thing you can use to identify from maker to maker is actually the designs that get painted on them. Commonly their most famous feature and another reason why they factor so heavily into interior design is because a lot of them are decorated with simple country designs in cobalt blue. Also known as the interior decorator's friend. Yep. Again, pretty easy to decorate with. (laughs) And again, these are pieces of folk art. Every image is going to vary from image to image, but you see themes with a lot of them. Some of them only ever had wheat. Some of them only ever did botanicals. Some of them did aminals. Yes, I said it that way on purpose. Don't come at me. Would you like to come at D? Write in. Antiques Freaks Podcast. At Don't you fucking dare. I want a little whimsy in my life, okay? How dare you? As for the age of the croc, well, this also vacillates wildly from extremely easy to extremely difficult. Very difficult because other than having images painted on the front, they don't vary much. They're just stoneware that was made for an extremely practical everyday purpose. So the number of identifying features is actually pretty slim. But if you look closely enough at anything, you can find hints. You can look at the glaze. A salt glaze, which is very common and again sort of integral to the image of a food crock, was not used until after 1775. Now, the salt glaze results in a mostly clear glassy glaze with many chunks and bubbles in it from the way it's fired. These chunks and divots are very important to identifying salt glazes and making sure something isn't a reproduction. And also, the iconic cylinder shape of a crock didn't become the standard shape of the crock. I keep feeling like I'm talking about the shoes, I gotta admit to you. Oh yeah, you've come around to my very good joke. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so if what you're picturing is a croc that is something of like a perfect cylinder or like a trash barrel barrel shape, I guess it didn't have to be a trash barrel. It could be any barrel. No, it's a trash barrel. No, a barrel is a different shape, isn't it? It is. It gets bigger in the middle. Do you have an opinion on shapes? Write it. Antiques Reeks Podcast at (laughs) gmail.com. 
Yeah, that was actually a later adaptation of a croc. They tended to be tapered because it was easier to cover them to keep bugs out and stuff. Generally, if there's a pattern name on the bottom, it was made after 1810 when it became fashionable to come up with patterns. If the word limited or LTD is on the bottom, it's generally made after the 1860s due to a variety of export law and product making laws that required businesses to identify themselves. If the mark says made in blank, it's probably from the 1900s or after, after laws were passed again to regulate exportation. If the mark says Nippon, it's Japanese from before the 1920s, when Japan was marking its goods with Nippon. If it's marked Nip Off, you have a reproduction. Yeah, if it says Nip Off, that's actually from Nega Japan. <laughs> Neo Queen Serenity hasn't saved them yet. Um... If it has a sticker on top of the glaze, that's from the late 1800s or later. I've never actually seen this. I personally believe it's pretty rare, but I kept seeing people refer to stickers on top of the glaze, so I don't know. And hand-painted images actually sort of stop appearing in the late 1890s. And for whatever reason, kind of boils down to fashionability, a croc that has an etched design that is filled with blue paint is actually a sign that it is from the 17 to mid-1800s. Now, as these things are basically an iconic element of popular design, you do have to worry about reproductions. The glaze is my personal favorite determination. Again, salt glazes are almost always imperfect in their surface. As the glaze cures, you get little chunks and lumps of the glaze. You can't always see them, but you can definitely always feel them. And when you look behind you, you will see two sets of footprints in the sand. And that's where the croc carried you. Wait. <laughs> Anyway, normal things I set aside. <laughs> Any decoration painted on top of the glaze is a sign of a reproduction. This can be difficult to determine if you are unpracticed at it, but generally, even very smooth paint has a sort of dimensionality when it's done over a pottery glaze. And it can be chipped, but I don't recommend going to that first because you can <laughs> really damage things that way. Generally speaking, anything that's too precise or perfect, I see a lot of people saying this is an indication of a reproduction. I don't believe that's true. As we covered, post-industrial revolution stamps kind of became pretty common on these. So at that point, I'm going to give you a solid good luck. You might want to look for other signs, generally wear and tear. You should be suspicious of anything that was used in a kitchen literally every day that looks like it's perfect. Yeah. You know, this isn't like fine china, which was meant to be preserved. This should be pretty rough even when it's in excellent condition. And the wear and tear should be uneven. Exactly. Exactly. It shouldn't look like someone took a belt sander to three quarters of it. So yeah, I don't ascribe too much to being concerned about printed or stamped designs. Like, again, those could be just newer. And by newer, we mean 1910s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so <laughs> new newer for a food croc. Closer to the invention of the, uh, the refrigerator, which would eventually spell their demise. Another thing to look for is, while these do tend to be painted by hand, you need to look out for if it's too elaborate to have been done by hand. At the very least, in a short space of time. Generally, nobody was painting these like they were goddamned masterpieces. So if it's an unusually elaborate or precise piece of work, basically less folky and more an artist made this as art, that is a warning sign because it means someone took the time to try to dupe you. Or that it was an automatic sublimation print or something like that. Or it's a reproduction piece by a modern ceramic artist trying to replicate the folk art whose work may have passed through hands other than their own by this point and is now being sold second or third hand by someone who doesn't know its provenance and assumes it's old. That is actually a huge problem with these and unfortunately I cannot tell you much. 
with that, I can't help you because they are handmade. So they pass a lot of tests. And some of them are actually reasonably old. Again, if you're just getting it to decorate, it's still probably worth the money. Yeah. That's a handmade piece of art. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But if you are looking for an antique, then good luck. At that point, you just turn to wear and tear. You know, the newer pieces, the less time it's had to get beaten up. And generally people buying these aren't actually, even like the nice artist's variations, aren't being used for food all the time. So they do tend to be in better shape. Another interesting sign, and again, a very, very subtle one, is the thick wall right in the center tends to bow out. Basically, it's just where the clay starts sinking a little bit in on itself while it's being fired, which kind of interrupts the cylinder shape. Again, this could just happen with a handmade one, like Ken said. As for what affects their value, lots of things. The end. <laughs> the, the end. If it has its lid, that's immediate. That's a fucking immediate. I have seen the value of one go from 20 to $500 by the presence of a lid. Damn. Yeah, because they got damaged. And also because they didn't always have them. So you're already talking less pieces had lids generally. You know, with dry goods, you would just put cloth over it to make sure weevils didn't get in. And the lid gets moved, it gets broken. And as with lots of other things that were very common, just any general variation. Some companies later, but prior to the 1950s, would move to whiteware stoneware, which would be stoneware that was not salt glazed and would lack that sort of earthy gray tone that the stoneware tended to have. This was for a variety of reasons. One was just to stand out, ease of stamping, which at the time had become common. Most importantly, not getting salt everywhere in your fucking kiln. The salt glaze was super messy. And as a result, these are unique and tend to be more collectible. Larger pieces are immediately more valuable for the obvious reasons that if you got it there, that was pretty difficult. That's pretty rare. And a lot of it does boil down to if it's decorated and what it's decorated with. It can be super subjective. It can be just generally if you like the way something looks more than the others, if you prefer animals over botanicals. But there's a level of craftsmanship that is kind of, I think, apparent to everyone, even the layman collector. And so if you've got like a really beautifully painted cobalt chicken, you're going to get more money for that. Everything else, it does come down to condition, of course, like we've mentioned multiple times, these things get used a lot. If it's in excellent condition and very old, well, that's going to be worth a fair bit. I don't want to talk about examples of prices because in my experience, the cheapest I've ever seen one was about 50 bucks. They go in decent condition up into the hundreds pretty quickly. Here, especially with local examples from, you know, this uh, southeastern New England area, I've seen them go for two to five to eight hundred. I know there are areas of Pennsylvania that are very similar. Uh, Pennsylvania actually was sort of a birthing place for a variety of croc trends, including the use of two different colors on one croc. <laughs> it's, it's pretty regional, the prices, you know? Yeah. And that is it for the Reliable Kitchen Croc. Sources for today include Expert Village Leaf Group on YouTube. Antiques.lovetoknow.com, Antique Stoneware Crocs. TrueLegacyHomes.com, Antique Crocs. TXAntiqueMall.com, how do I identify an antique stoneware croc? CollectorsWeekly.com, Early American Crocs and Jars. And RedWingCollectors.org, Stoneware by Redwing. If you would like to suggest an episode topic or just say hello, you can email us directly at AntiquesFreaksPodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, AntiquesFreaksFriends, or you can tag us on Tumblr, AntiquesFreaks.tumblr.com, or you can message us on Instagram at Instagram.com slash AntiquesFreaks. Wow, that was really aggressive, Ken. Way to go. (laughs) I'm gunning for my auctioneer's license. Hell yeah. Just kidding. That would require me to go out in public and talk to people. Disgusting. Never gonna happen. Sure would. If you like all that shit Ken just said, consider scrolling on down to wherever you're listening to your podcast and leaving us a review. Reviews are excellent for us and get our voices into a variety of listening ears. 
And if you would like more Antiques Freaks in your week, you can check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash antiquesfreaks, where we are posting our Let's Plays of Sphinx and the Cursed Mummy, an Egyptologist train wreck of a game. And some might say a gaming train wreck of gaming it's a bad game with author and archaeologist of Sierra or you can check out our patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesweeks where every week we reproduce a bonus episode where we read and review a chapter of the victorian penny dreadful varney the vampire or the feast of blood special shout out to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love so much love and thank you in particular for listening that's right you au revoir goodbye <laughs>